Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Um, well, it's Memorial Day weekend, and apparently you guys uh, don't trust the weather because you're here. Figured it was going to rain anyway, so you might as well just come to church or something. Um, hey, before I, I, I jump into the scriptures this morning, I just got a comment on the whale. I mean, that is the coolest thing. Eric, I mean, uh, um, who made that? Uh, Henry Ortega made that. And uh, if you caught at the beginning of the service, we had bubbles shooting out of it. And, and I'm sure the people sitting right there are glad the doors closed because they've got, like, soapy stuff. The other thing that I noticed, uh, now you can't do this because they've got security guards there at the, at the gate. But that's a joke. They don't, but you can't go back there. But Henry also created like, the, like a sensory experience of the belly of the whale. And I have no idea what the, this foreign matter is inside of this big tub. But he's got it kind of decorated as like a, a maybe the, the spout hole or whatever. But you have to put your hand in it. And he's got stuff in there. I'm not sure what it is. It's alien. I know that. It feels like, like if you've been fishing and you use salmon eggs, it feels like it's full of salmon eggs. So he's trying to create some sort of experience of what it would feel like to be inside of something. Well, do you know what it is? Oh, good. So we can split that up later. It's tapioca bubble tea stuff. It's like... Okay, uh, one last thing. I'm just going to... I don't normally do this, but um, my friends, Linus and Sharon Morris, are with us this morning, sitting next to my wife, Robbie. You just stand up. We don't do this, but I'm going to do it this time. Um, Linus is the former president of Christian Associates and uh, a colleague of mine, and I've I've taken over his role. And I have to do this just because he was, like, weirding me out, like, taking pictures during the worship, which is totally off limits. I mean, you just don't do that kind of stuff. I mean, so he was taking my pictures. I was praying. I look up, and he's like, okay, that's just rude and, and weird. So anyway, I thought I'd embarrass him, too. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, we're going to read the entire text. I'm reading from the New International Version, if you'd like to follow along with me. Jonah chapter 2. Verse 1, it says this, from inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. Now, I just have to pause one second. This is probably... I need somebody who's quite dramatic to read this because you, you can't imagine Joan actually praying like this. So, and the seaweed wrapped around my head. You know, that's not the way it worked. You, you have to imagine him uh, going through this traumatic experience. We'll have to leave that for a different time. But um, verse 6, to the roots of the mountain I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. 
but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, let, let me ask a question. Uh, has anybody ever come close to drowning? Feel like, like I was really on the edge? Raise your hand. Okay? Has anybody ever drowned? Okay, sorry. <laughs> Obviously, you wouldn't be here. <clears throat> uh, c- could you do me a favor, those of you who raised your hand, what was kind of the, the underneath emotion that you experienced when you were on the very cusp of drowning? What, what, what was going through your mind, your heart? What emotion was you, were you feeling? What kind of primary emotion? Terror? Great word. What else? <laughs> I think we can see this in Jonah's language too, right? This is it. I'm down to the depths where Sheol is, where the dead people are. Okay, anybody else? <laughs> if you're getting eaten by a fish, you are, actually. Okay, what's that? Panic. Panic. That's, I, I've felt close to drowning two different times. One was when I was a little guy, just learning how to swim. I was taking swim lessons uh, at Hilliard Pool. I'm a Hilliard boy. Went to Hilliard, learned how to swim, and I, you know, did the bobbing and gained confidence from that, right? It's very important. And then the kicking on the edge, and then you learn how to swim. And uh, I don't know if they still do this at public pools or not, but there's one moment where you're swimming, everybody's paying attention, and then they're diving off the, into the deep end. And then they blow the whistle... And everybody gets to go to the deep end to swim. And everybody thought that was the coolest thing. Well, I'm little. You have to, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not small right now. But when I was a first grader, I was like 40 pounds. I was always the littlest kid in my, my grade. And I, but I'm always, I've always been the emotional one, too. And if the, if the herd's going, I'm going. And so they blew the whistle. Everybody said, yeah, it's cool, the deep end. And I just got out of the pool, and I ran to the deep end, and I just jumped in. I did not give that much forethought because there's like 50 other kids jumped in at the same time and it, it, it felt like it was about 50 feet then, but I'm sure I was about this far from the edge and from so many people jumping in, the waves were everywhere and people are flailing and I'm getting hit and honestly, I'm thinking, this is it. And I panicked and I'm just like flailing, flailing, flailing. Finally, I find myself in the edge, get out of the water, never go to the deep end again. I've never been there. I was so afraid. Okay. <laughs> That's a joke, too. You guys have to relax a little bit. <laughs> I'm 6'2". I swim the deep end. <laughs> okay. Second story, though. Further on, uh, I'm in college. I'm actually a lifeguard now. <laughs> My life ambition is to save people from that experience. <laughs> no, I'm a lifeguard at the Spokane Club. Uh, which is hilarious because I did the early shift and the club opens like at 6 and I had to be there at 6 till whatever time. And the only people that come to the Spokane Club early are guys recovering from heart attacks. I'm, I kid you not. So everybody that comes in is probably 70 and they've got a zipper chest. You know, and, I, and so my prayer life went through the ceiling because people would come in and they could hardly like, oh, they get in the water, they take two strokes and grab the side and, and heave for air. And I kid you not, I'm like this. Please, please, dear God, do not let this guy 
have any type of cardiac arrest while I'm here. I do not want to do chest compressions on him. Honestly, that's my, my thought. So I, was, I really was spiritual because my prayer life was activated by these guys. Well, and while I was being a lifeguard there, I taught swim lessons as well. And I really wasn't, I never went through the training for that. I was just a lifeguard, and these people were doing the lessons. And at the end of the, the swim lessons, they have all the kids jump off the diving board. And um, I was the biggest person in the pool. I mean, uh, and so they said, okay, you get in the water, and you need to be there in case they panic, right? Well, they didn't tell me what would happen. Uh, because every little kid that was on the diving board was thinking this. I don't want to get in there. They're making me jump in the deep end. I'm probably going to drown, so I need to jump for dry land. So where did they go? They jumped on top of me. I had no idea what was going on. All of a sudden, these kids are jumping off the board. I'm taking hits, you know, and this one little kid jumped in, landed on top of me, and started to panic. And I have no idea what to do now. I mean, how do you, how do you rescue somebody when they're on top of you, flailing? And my fear was that this little kid would have lifelong damage like I did. And so instead of getting my wits about me and, and actually helping him, I stayed under the water and tried to keep pushing him up. Well, there's no ground to push up on, so I keep pushing him up, and I keep pushing him up, and I'm kicking as hard as I can, you know, <laughs> push up, up, up. And next thing you know, I realize I don't have any air. And so I had to make the decision, okay, do I let this kid go through the panic or do I die? And so with one last kick, I, or one last uh, shot of energy, I, I, I push up as hard as I can. I just throw him over to the side. <laughs> Here's the emotion I felt. <clears throat> it was utter panic. And there's nothing worse than running out of air and not having any place to find any. Now, what I want to do is have you move into the story at this point. Because... I think it's really contrived for us to look at it in such a sterile way. Let's just look at this prayer. As a matter of fact, the English Standard Version translates the first verse like this. Then Jonah prayed. And I think about that, like, okay, that is not what happened. Right? It wasn't like, okay, let's all come forward and we'll kneel and we'll pray together. It was help. God, panic. Distress. In fact, if you look at the text, all the language that Jonah is using is, is distressed language. I don't, I don't know how you can interpret it any other way. Verse 2, in my distress, I call to the Lord. Second part of verse 2, from the deep in the realm of the dead, Sheol, that's where dead people are. He knew he, he thought he was dying. Verse 3, you hurled me into the depths. Verse 4, I said, I've been banished from your sight. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me. In fact, literally, it means water was at my throat. The deep surrounded me. Seaweeds, seaweed was around my head. Next verse, to the root of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in. In other words, you couldn't get out. Right? So you see this language, and there's no way we can think of it in any terms but in 
incredible emotion. Now, for those of you who weren't here the last couple weeks, uh, chapter 1 is a story of God calling Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. God calls him, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. What does Jonah do? Goes this way. And Russ showed a map, I thought it was a great illustration, showing the map how far away Tarshish is from Nineveh. There's absolutely no way he could get any further on a boat. He boards a boat, they go in the middle of the the sea, a storm falls upon the boat, they're beginning to uh, take on water, they're all going to be drowned. They draw lots to see who's responsible for this, it falls on Jonah, and Jonah essentially says, throw me overboard, I'm the one. And so they pray, it says they turn to the Lord, and they said this, let not this innocent, any innocent blood fall on our head, and then they chuck him overboard. Right? Because they didn't know, but something's going on. They throw him overboard. Jonah falls into the water, gets swallowed up by a fish, and these guys are saved. Right? So we enter our story right now. Jonah was on the run, and God found him. Can I say this before we get back to the text? I really believe that Jonah, in his uh, aggressive departure from God was trying to get away from God, even in saying, throw me overboard. He actually thought that by getting thrown overboard, he would die and escape God. But we know this, that you don't get to make the rules. In matter, as a matter of fact, Psalm 139 says, where can I go from your presence? Where can I run from your spirit? In other words, you can't get away from God. And obviously, the case in Jonah's situation, this was true as well. But in the text, we notice a change. In the midst of the despairing language, he says this. If you look at verse 2, he says, In my distress, I call to the Lord. Later on, in the realm of the dead, I call for help, and you listen to my cry. Verse 4, I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again to your holy temple. If you slide down further to verse 6, To the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, O Lord, my God, brought my life from the pit. Next verse. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you. Do you get what's going on? Actually, Jonah was coming to his senses. It's very similar to the story of the prodigal son. You guys are aware of the story, right? Jesus tells three parables in Luke. And essentially, he tells a parable about a lost coin, a lost sheep, or a lamb. And a lost son. And the story of the son is there was a a wealthy man. He had two sons. The younger son says, I would like my inheritance before you die. And it it infers that he was going to go spend it on himself. Fast cars, fast women, da-da-da. Right? He goes out, wastes all the money, finds himself in a pig pen, eating eating the slop of the pigs. And it says in the text that he came to his senses. He actually woke up, had self-realization. He was aware of something else going on. And he said this, even my father's servants are eating better than this. I will arise and go back to my father. Listen, gang, that's exactly what's going on here. Jonah's on the way away. He's taking off, trying to flee from God's spirit, God's call, and he comes to his senses, finally in the midst of being afflicted, and he turns back and says, yet I will call on the Lord. Right? Do you see that? So, at this point in the story, Jonah has a revelation. And I'm going to read, if you'll slide down to verse 8, I'd like to read this verse again. 
It says, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. So the question for, that I'd like to work with the rest of the morning is, what did he mean by that? What does that mean? Um, what is he talking about? I believe that there are always things in our lives that compete for the love and allegiance with God. There's little passivity about it. The passage uses the word worthless idols. Uh, literally, that means a breath or a vapor. You, you know what that is? He's referring to something that appears significant. It seemingly captures the, the very core of who we are, yet it's fragile and does not serve the purpose that only God can fulfill. That's what he's talking about. He says that if you cling to those things, those worthless idols, you will forsake or abandon God's love, more literally, his mercy. The Hebrew word here is the word of God's covenantal love, his redeeming, unconditional grace. So if you cling to whatever this, this, this worthless idol is, this vapor, what he says is you're doing an exchange program. If you, if you want to give that regard, that's what the ESV calls it, if you pay regard to that idol, essentially you're going to repent or turn away from the grace of God. Okay? Do you see what he's saying? This is very, very important for us because uh, when we talk about idolatry, it's language that we don't use very often in our culture. We don't have shrines where they're sacrificing animals or people. And so consequently, we sit here the word idolatry and we go, eh, well, that really has something to do with somebody else or some other culture or some historic culture. Um, Jonah could do that with Nineveh. Jonah looked at Nineveh, and he could identify the idolatry in that culture. Now, we've, we've already learned the relationship Israel had with Nineveh. It was an oppressive people. Uh, the, the people um, really were savage to the Israelis. There was this loathsomeness toward the Israelis' back. It was a very strained relationship. So Jonah looked at these people, and he could identify those. But here's the thing. When we talk about idolatry, it's, I find, and you, you can just spurn this if you want, but I find it's really easy for me to identify idols in other people's lives. I can look at other people, and I can diagnose. As a matter of fact, we're going to do this just before communion. Russ and Kevin are going to come up, and, and, and they're going to listen to you, and then they're going to diagnose your idols before you can take communion today. Okay. <laughs> That's really not it either. But don't, don't you get it? It's easy to look at somebody else and go, boy, look at the way they're doing that. That's the way Jonah did it. But the challenge is, how do we actually look at our own life? What is it in us that's challenging? J just for an exercise, let me do this. What do you think Jonah's idols were? Because that's where we arrive in the text. He repents. He comes to this point of awareness and he, he realizes that I have my own idols and I've stepped away from God's grace. What do you think his are? We're, we're a smaller group here today. What do you think? What do you think Jonah's idols were? Country, nationalists, and related to race, right? Do you guys hear that? That's such an important one here. In fact, I think that's probably the core for Jonah is nationalism. Now, just, just for fun, yeah, you got the right answer. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, just, just for fun, let, let's think about the United States. 
I want to be very sensitive in this topic because this is Memorial Day. But just think about the United States and the nationalism that happens here. Oftentimes, uh, and, I, and I might offend some people today, but oftentimes we supplant the will of God and the direction of God for our own country. I think oftentimes we make decisions based upon what is nationalistic rather than what is God, what is the kingdom of God saying about that. So I think that could be an easy switch over to us. Okay, what else about Jonah? Reputation, good. He was a prophet. We know that. Historically, he's mentioned throughout the scriptures. So the prophet, God says, go preach. If he actually did go and preach, there would be um, effect from that, from his country. Yes, what else? I'm sorry? Tribe? Pride. Pride. <laughs> um, pride is probably related to every one of them, right? Comforts. I mean, he just didn't want to. As a matter of fact, I think he loathed them so much that he could not imagine forgiveness for them. He couldn't even imagine it. This is, these are the people who have injured us. They need judgment. They need divine retribution. They do not need forgiveness. <laughs> so we find this um, in a lot of situations today. I have a friend who's Jewish, and he's starting a ministry called the Ishmael Isaac Project. You know, both those guys are in the Old Testament, right? And if you know much about what's going on in the world of Islam, there is not much favor toward the Jewish people. You hear over and over from many places in the Middle East that they would like the nation of Israel to disappear. They would like it to go away. They don't feel like they have a legitimate right to be there. And then you talk to Jewish people and talk about how do we love Muslim people, and it's incomprehensible. As a matter of fact, Brian, that's what he does. He goes to synagogues, and he says... How can the synagogue love people in Islam? And the response is, without exception, that is not possible for us. And he goes to the mosque and says, how can, the mo- how can is- uh, Islamic people love Jews? And that's incomprehensible as well. I mean, there is this, this, this separation that is astounding. And so Brian, a Jewish man, comes in and says, I think the gospel has to break this stuff. I love what he's doing. He's going, no, no, no. I want to be a person of the kingdom, which means I'm going to love this person and this person. We're going to seek shalom for the world. So, in a more specific or personal way, what is idolatry for us? I'm going to give you a little hint. This is a quote from Tim Keller. He's written quite a bit about this topic of late. And uh, this is from a sermon I listened to that he gave. Uh, I think we have it projected. This is him speaking, Sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Now, if you'll allow me just to pause for a moment, I'd like you to think about that line. Making good things into ultimate things. I think that's the context we're in. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. 
In other words, anything that is relied upon other than Christ could be considered idolatry. As a matter of fact, there's there's a verse in Jeremiah chapter 2, I'm going to read for you, that talks about this, and I think it captures this idea of what what Jonah is talking about. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2. This is God speaking through Jeremiah. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So there's two sins. One is forsaking God. The other is trying to replace him with an inferior subject, right? Does anybody have a cistern here? You have a cistern? Wow. I didn't know people had these. Okay, what, what does a cistern do? Stores water. Where does the water come from? I'll, I'll answer this for you. Somewhere else. Right? Do you catch the imagery of what's going on in this text? There is a place where fresh water exists. It's a, it's a fount, it's rain, it's someplace else, and it's beautiful and fresh. But what happens is a cistern collects that, the authentic pure water, and holds it for a different purpose. Jeremiah's coming along and said, you've carved out cisterns for yourself. And you know what? The cisterns leak. They leak. That's what idolatry is. It's trying to replace the true fount. John chapter 7 says Jesus is the source of living water. He's the spring of living water. That's where our life must go to. But what many times we do, we go, we go that's beautiful, but I'm going to collect this here. And it kind of looks like the real thing, but it doesn't really do it. The song that Carly sang earlier, and I'm going to ask you to help me again because I can't remember the exact line. The first line of that car, many men drink the rain and turn to thank the cloud. Do you get that? That's essentially what Romans chapter 1 says. We exchange the, the, the image of God or God for a created thing. And when we find ourselves creating those things, we're, we're leaning into those created things, essentially what we're doing is we're committing to an idol. So let me get more specific. Um, I have a special note sheet. My wife gave it to me. I'm going to read it to you. These are possible idols that you might be involved in. Okay? Don't raise your hand when I get to yours. <laughs> I just want to read them to you. Now, some are quite obvious. Um, aberrant sexuality or addicted to sexuality. Lust for power, control. Consumerism. I'm going to buy my way to happiness. Let me get more specific. Maybe drill down a little bit further. Food. Food can be your idol. Fine food. The experience of eating well and drinking well. How about this one? Children. Do you think children can be an idol? Or idols, I should say. If you don't think so, um, you're wrong. (laughs) I'm just going to say that. I mean, oftentimes we worship our kids. We treat them like they're the fount. When they're not. Um, Video games. This is a tough one for me to say. 
basketball. <laughs> now, if you've not followed me around in my life, you don't get that part. But if you're, if you're like me, you know that it really wasn't idle. It occupied all of my heart. How about this? A standard of living. The way life's supposed to be lived out. The American way. The pottery barn look. Sorry. They have some cool stuff. <laughs> I mean, but... Education. Knowledge. How about this? Knowledge about God. It's interesting, knowledge about God most often degenerates to moralism. And moralism is keeping track of rights and wrongs, not only for yourself, but then trying to push it on other people. That's, an, that's idolatry. Music. Travel. Experience. Achievement. Religion. As we already mentioned, nationalism. And we could, we could make a, a list way bigger than that. And if, 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 if we really had the time and the honesty, uh, you could share tons more that you're struggling with putting in front of God. We all do. I think it's endemic. Functional saviors. So how does someone identify his or her idol? This is from Keller, too. I'm not going to try to steal his stuff. Um, This is his little uh, metric for figuring out where your idols are. Ready? Look at your daydreams. When you do not have to think about something, like when you're waiting for the bus, or where, where does your mind love to rest? Or look at where you spend your money most effortlessly. Also, if you take uh, your most uncontrolled emotions, or the guilt that you can't get rid of, you'll find your idol somewhere at the bottom. I think there's even a, maybe a clear way, and it's in this diagnostic question. Go ahead and project that. If I can just fill in the blank, you put your thing in there. If I can just, then I'll be okay. If I can just get married, I can just get that job, or if I can just get that money, I'll be okay. I'll be loved. I'll be satisfied. It's important for us to evaluate. So here's the deal. What I want to get to and, and wrap up this morning with is uh, really how do you overcome them? And I, there might be a better word for that. Uh, overcome sounds so militaristic. But the reality is we have to do something with those things that are supplanting Christ in our life, right? So let me give you just a few ideas. Um, the first one is embrace humility. Really, that's what this whole story, this whole prayer in chapter 2 is about, is Jonah coming to a place of humility. He had run from God because he thought his nation and his ideas were more important than God. So he took off, and God humbled him. There's a psalm verse, uh, 119, verse 67, that says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. That's really Jonah's story. In fact, C.S. Lewis said, Our suffering or our challenges are God's megaphone to get our attention. 
And God got Jonah's attention. But can I suggest to you that you not wait for that? There's a verse in 1 Peter that says, Humble yourself before God's mighty hand, and in due season he will lift you up. It's not saying that God will do it. It's saying that we humble ourselves. And that's a totally different posture. Now, um, (laughs) humbling yourself is very difficult. A lighter example, yesterday. Now, I, I I was a sprinter in high school, played basketball in college. I mean, I, fairly athletic. Yesterday, Robbie and I are taking a walk with Trey. We're in this big field, and he goes, okay, Dad. Actually, it was more, like, more challenging than that. I'll race you to the other end. Now, something happened in me where I just didn't think about uh, that I'm, I'm 52, and I've got chronic uh, degenerative arthritis in my left knee, uh, at 52, you just have things wrong with you, physically and mentally. <laughs> so he says, I'll, I'll race the other side, and something kicked in where I, I, I got to do it, I got to do it. And I started running, and it, like, have you ever had like an injury where you've been cut and there's all this scar tissue? That's what I felt like my joints were, a little, <laughs> you know, like running. That's like, oh, I used to run fast, it doesn't work anymore. And, uh, okay, this is the truth. I couldn't beat my 10-year-old to the other side. That's humbling. He's fast, but he's not that fast. (laughs) I'm going to go start training. I think I can still beat him. You know, what I'd like to see happen is um, a community that embraces a confessional posture. So often when we see uh, people in indiscretion, people in sin, they confess when they get caught. Right? I mean, for those who have been around a while, we re- you see the news and all of a sudden some national Christian figure confesses, you know, and they're weeping and, and not to make light of this, but the reality is they're, they're confessing because they got exposed. You know what I would like to see happen? is a community of believers accept a confessional posture where we confess before we get caught. Now, that requires a safe community, and I'm not suggesting you get up here and air your laundry, but there has to be some facet to our community where you can be yourself, where you can be honest. The scriptures say, confess your sins one to another, another so that you can be healed. I am persuaded at this point, after traveling a long time, that you are not healed in the dark. You don't get healed in the dark. There's got to be a place where we tell the truth. The reality is, Jonah thought he could avoid God. Right? And right now, some of you in this room have hidden sin, and you're thinking to yourself, I can avoid telling the truth. And the scriptures say, your sin will find you out. I don't know when, how. It's stunning. Robbie and I have an example right now that we're experiencing where someone thought they could do something in the dark, and all of a sudden we're exposed to it, and we have to, like, why don't, why don't we change the way we do community where we can actually be honest? Honestly, we have, to, we have to embrace humility if we're going to cast down these idols. Second piece, we have to accept God's magnanimous grace. 
See, the, the, the core issue in this story is Jonah knew God was gracious. That's why he didn't go in the first place. He wasn't completely aware or um, willing to embrace. He hadn't made, come to terms with God's grace. You don't believe me? Read, let's uh, turn to Jonah chapter 4. It says in verse 1, But Jonah was greatly displeased. This is after he preached to the Ninevites and they repent, right? He was angry. Verse 2, he prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? This is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Remember the text, verse 8? Those who cling to worthless idols exchange God's grace. They they forsake God's mercy. See, Jonah had not come to terms with grace, and oftentimes we don't either. When we move into moralism or just doing things because we're supposed to, we fail to realize that God has called us into a responsive life. If you don't believe that you were a sinner and you needed Jesus, then you're going to miss this. See, we're just in, just as everyone in this room, every Ninevite, every Israeli, every person in the history of the planet was in need of Jesus. And when you come to grips with Jesus and the grace that's given to us by receiving him, it's hard to live that hard way, that way where you separate from other people. One of the advantages, there's not many, but one of the advantages of not being raised in a Christian home is when I converted to follow Jesus in my early 20s, I was acutely aware that I needed him. I couldn't go on without him. And I've never gotten over that. Some of you in this room have not arrived at that place where you realize you can't go on without him. God's grace. The last piece is this. Um, Not only do we need to embrace humility, not only do we need to accept God's grace, but uh, intentionally repent. We need to repent. That's really what the text says. If you look back at chapter 2, after he says this phrase, worthless idols, uh, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love, he says this, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. In other words, what you've called me to do, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, I'll do it. And this is what he says. He'll say, salvation comes from the Lord. He just said, I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from my fleeing, and I'm going to step toward you, and I'm going to obey. I'm I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Repentance. There's a, a, a quote I came across this last week. In fact, uh, uh, here it is right here. Leo to- uh, Tolstoy said this. It's easier to produce ten volumes of philosophical writings than to put one principle into practice. And I was stunned by that quote. I put it on Facebook. A friend of mine says, maybe we should put the word theological writings in there. And I go, granted, yes. We should as well. Because oftentimes we get caught up in all this other stuff, but we never come to a place of obedience. But my real problem is not putting one principle into practice, listen to this, but to consistently live it. I can muster will and motive to do one thing, but to string those moments together for a lifetime is the tough part. See, there's a collision coming. If you choose to step into a repentant life, it's it's not just one decision. That's an event. 
The, the, the key for us is continuing to make those decisions of repentance. I love what Francis Schaeffer used to say. He said, Christianity is the faith of endless new beginnings. That means that we can always turn, right? And stringing together a lifetime of, of obedience, of repentance. I love Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. That's our call. Now, if you'll do this for me, just imagine. Uh, let, let me cut a swath of this carpet out here. Just, just imagine that. And what I'm going to call this carpet is God's story. That, that's the, a lot of people use the word narrative. I mean, this, God has a story from Genesis to the end of Revelation. He has a plan. He's a missionary God. He's moving toward people. He's always in that activity. And so our life is to stand or get in the middle of this plan. That's what Jonah's call was. Here's my path. I want you to enter it, and I want you to do this. Really, listen. Repentance simply means I'm going to enter into the path. I'm going to turn away from those things, and I'm going to step into the path of God. And the moment you step off that path, you're exchanging something. You're stepping out of the, the story of God, his life, and his purposes and you think you're doing something significant, but the reality is you're, you're operating with a cistern that's leaky, and you should step right back into that where the true fount is, right? That's what Jonah's talking about. When we talk about repentance, you have to understand it like that. It's not punitive. It's really an opportunity to enter God's life, and that's what that act of repentance is. That's our call, the resolve to follow. The very last verse in the chapter says this. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. <laughs> he goes through this piece, this whole thing, and the Lord says, okay, let's go. And he gives him the call again. He says, okay, I want you, I'm, I'm not done. I still want you to go preach to Nineveh. And if you look at chapter 3, which will be covered next week, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh. And proclaim to it the message I give you. And, catch the next verse, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went. That's us. That's where we should be. So as we take communion this morning, I'm going to invite you to interact with Christ. This is a, this is a table of symbols. We've set it up differently today as more of a, a meal. And, and the scriptures say, uh, that on the night that he betrayed, was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my broken body for you. Take and eat it in remembrance of me. And also he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new, of the new covenant of my blood. It's a new agreement. It's a new accessibility to God that symbolizes that take and drink in remembrance of Jesus. This is what we're going to do as a family here today. So I'm going to invite you to come around the table. And... I know that we have this tendency, whenever we have to go somewhere, we get in a line. Well, I'm kind of iconoclastic. I'm kind of like a rebel. But can I ask you not to get in a line today and come around the table? And you might come with your family. You might come with a friend. You might come by yourself. But come and break the bread. As you break it, think of Christ's broken body for you. Think about what's going on. There's something grand and cosmic going on in our midst. As you drink the cup, think of his spilled out blood. You come and enjoy the table of the Lord today. Let me pray. Dear Lord, we do ask you to 
enliven our minds and our thoughts so that we can actually get this idea of what's going on in the book of Jonah. Would you bring us to a place of humility as we truly understand your beautiful grace and draw us to stepping into your life, into your story, into a repentant life. Pray that you would help us, even as we gather around this table today, that you would speak to a spirit, convict us, and draw us. Let us not miss the opportunity that's before us as we encounter you afresh. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.